This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. For most of my adult life, I traveled a safe path. I remember in vivid detail the moment I began the journey, August 1983 the hot, muggy summer of synchronicity and modern love. A few months out of college, I stood on the corner of 7th Avenue and Bleecker Street in New York City, wearing pastel blue balloon trousers, a hot pink v-neck t-shirt, and bright white Capizio Oxfords. I lingered at the intersection, peering deep into my future, contemplating the choice between the secure and the uncertain, between the creative and the logical the known, and the unknown. I dreamed of being an artist and a writer, but inasmuch as I knew what I wanted, I felt compelled to consider what was reasonable in order to safeguard my economic future. Even though I wanted what my best friend once referred to as the whole wide world, I thought it was prudent to compromise. I told myself it was more sensible to aspire for success that was realistically feasible perhaps even failure-proof. It never once occurred to me that I could succeed at having it all. As I look back on that decision 25 years later, I tried to soothe myself with this rationale. I grew up in an atmosphere of emotional and financial disarray, so my impulse as a young woman was to be tenaciously self-sufficient. As a result, I have lived within a fairly fixed set of possibilities. I am not an artist, with a capital A, I am a brand consultant, with a capital B. I don't work alone painting canvases and sculpting clay in a cold and quiet studio. I work in a bustling skyscraper and create logos for fast food restaurants and packaging for mass market soft drinks, salty snacks, and over-the-counter pharmaceuticals. I am not profoundly unhappy with what has transpired in the years leading up to today. Most days, I consider myself extremely lucky that I have a fun, secure job and a good paycheck. But I know deep in my heart that I settled. I chose financial and creative stability over artistic freedom, and I can't help but wonder what life would be like if I had made a different decision on that balmy night back in the West Village. I've come to this realization over the years. I am not the only person who has made this kind of choice, not by a long shot. I discovered these common self-imposed restrictions are rather insidious, though they start out simple enough. We begin by worrying we aren't good enough, smart enough, or talented enough to get what we want. Then we voluntarily live in this paralyzing mental framework rather than confront our our own role in this paralysis. Just the possibility of failing turns into a dutiful, self-fulfilling prophecy. We begin to believe that these personal restrictions are, in fact, the fixed limitations of the world. We go on to live our lives, all the while wondering what we can change and how we can change it, and we calculate and recalculate when we will be ready to do the things we really want to do, and we dream, if only.
if only, one day, someday. Every once in a while, often when we least expect it, we encounter someone more courageous, someone who chose to strive for that which seemed to us unrealistically unattainable, even elusive. And we marvel, we swoon, we gape. Often we are in awe. I think we look at these people as lucky when in fact luck has nothing to do with it. It is really all about the strength of their imagination. It is about how they constructed the possibilities for their life. In short, unlike me, they didn't determine what was impossible before it was even possible. John Maida once explained, the computer will do anything within its abilities, but it will do absolutely nothing unless commanded to do so. I think that people are the same. We like to operate within our abilities, but whereas the computer has a fixed code, our abilities are only limited by our perceptions. Two and a half decades since determining my code, and after 15 years of working in the world of branding, I am now in the process of rewriting the possibilities of what comes next. I don't know exactly what I will become. It is not something I can describe scientifically or artistically. Perhaps it's a code in progress. The grand scheme of a life, maybe, just maybe, is not about knowing or not knowing, choosing or not choosing. Perhaps what is truly known can't be described by or articulated by or even created with any sense of logic or science or art, but perhaps it can be expressed by the most authentic and meaningful combination of the two, poetry. As Robert Frost wrote, a poem begins as a lump in the throat, a sense of wrong, a homesickness, a lovesickness. It is never a thought to begin with. I recommend the following course of action for those who are just beginning their careers or for those like me who may be reconfiguring midway through. Heed the words of Robert Frost. Start with a big, fat lump in your throat. Start with a profound sense of wrong, a deep homesickness, or a crazy lovesickness, and run with it. If you imagine less, less will be what you undoubtedly deserve. Do what you love, and don't stop until you get what you love. Work as hard as you can, imagine immensities, don't compromise, and don't waste time. Start now. Not 25 years from now, not two weeks from now. Now. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Stephen Heller and Lita Tellerico. Before we get started with the show, let me tell you a bit more about them. Lita Tellerico is the co-founder and co-chair of the MFA Designers Author Program at the School of Visual Arts. She has spent her career involved with art, architecture, and design, and has, helped lead, and has held leadership positions with three notable institutions of higher education, Cooper Union, Purchase College, and the School of Visual Arts. She was the founding managing editor for American Illustration and Photography. She is the co-author of many books, including Design Career, Practical Knowledge for Beginning Illustrators and Designers, and The Design Entrepreneur. And Stephen Heller is the co-founder and co-chair with Lita of the MFA Designers Author Program and co-founder of the MFA in Design Criticism and MFA in Interaction Design Programs at the School of Visual Arts. 
For 33 years, he was an art director at the New York Times. He currently writes the visual column for the book review. He contributes to Design Observer and writes the Daily Heller blog for print magazine. He's the author of over 120 books on design and popular culture. He is the recipient of the 1999 AIGA Medal for Lifetime Achievement. And he has the noted distinction of being my only guest to appear on Design Matters four times Ooh. to celebrate every year I've been on the air. This is my fourth four-year anniversary show uh, of broadcast of Design Matters. Welcome, Steve and Lita. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Happy Thank you. Well, there are so many things to talk about. I want to talk with you about your book together, The Design Entrepreneur. I want to talk with you, Steve, about your two other books, Design Disasters, Great Designers, Fabulous Failures, and Lessons Learned, from which my opening monologue was taken, and Iron Fists, Branding in the 20th Century Totalitarian State, and the new program you are starting at SVA in Italy this summer. So let's first start talking about the design entrepreneur, turning graphic design into goods that sell your marvelous, important new book. First, why a book on designers as entrepreneurs? Lita? Oh, well, basically, there were um, students in our program. It all started with our program where we found that this program that we started 10 years ago, students came and wanted to really be designers as authors. And that was the uh, foundation and the starting point. And it was about uh, coming into coming into touch with things that they really needed to say and do and finding their voices, not just being in the service of others. And a natural extension to that was not only becoming a designer as author, but then it extended and evolved into as entrepreneur as well because they found that often their voice extended into some form. It gave form to a product and something that they wanted to bring to the market. And so viability was an essential component of it. And then once they had this product or project that they wanted to bring to the market, they had to figure out how to bring it there. And that's where the entrepreneurship came into it. And so we started giving them instruction in marketing and business plans and branding and how to make a pitch and so it was just this very natural evolution and so we thought we would record it in a book and in fact the first part of the book is about 20 case studies of uh, former MFA design students. Now uh, when I first heard about the designer as author program at SVA I was under the initial impression that it was for designers who also wanted to write, so designer as author. Tell me about the choice of the word author. Well, the term author, when we started the program 10 years ago, was being bandied around. Uh, Michael Rock wrote a piece in iMagazine. Uh, designers were taking authorial roles insofar as they were creating their content. Mm -hmm. It wasn't necessarily about writing. In fact, some of the so-called authors who wrote weren't necessarily that good at writing. But mm -hmm. they, they were good at, at putting their ideas together and doing something that was independent of a client. So authorship for us became a way of bridging the idea between business and uh, that edge called art. Okay. Uh, and it also has a real practical uh, component, and that is you can be an author in a broad sense. It's not so parochial as to be just putting uh, words or letters on paper. 
Now, you state in the book that the computer age has made the design entrepreneur possible. The digital age has made multimedia integration a necessity for a wide range of endeavors. Why do you think it's a necessity? It's a necessity because things are changing, because the whole complexion of uh, graphic design as we know it is turning. The web is making it imperative that designers have other skills, that they work not just in two-dimensional space, but in three-dimensional space and in virtual space. It's going to happen. It's happening. Uh, anybody who says it's not is just blind to the issues. Now, you start the book with the declaration of a term that I loved. Uh, you call it the I can do it all generation. Tell us more about how that term, how you came up with that term and what that means to you, what that means to designers. I think that the students, we created this studio setting for them, so we, we can only accept a limited number of students. Because Is it very hard to get into? Well, it's, um, you know, you have to be very talented, and uh, we try to create a diverse class, and so we accept international students. And because of the nature of this one-on-one -on -one interaction with the faculty, we wanted to keep it to a minimum. So for us, the number is 20, sometimes mm -hmm. 19, sometimes 21. But um, we created this studio setting 10 years ago when we started, and it was unlike all of the other programs where you just went to class and worked on your projects, where they had 24-hour access. And so they were in the studio, and we had a, a, a set, you know, very structured curriculum. And we found that, you know, we were saying you're going to be the designer's author, and if you have something that you want to do, it could be a book, or it could be a toy, or it could be a book about a toy, or it could be the actual toy, or it could be a website about the toy. And we found that they started doing all of these things. So, right. for instance, one project, one of the thesis projects that's also in the book, um, a project called Mezu by Jennifer Panapinto, where she created bowls, stacking bowls, mm -hmm. and she had identified the need uh, in the marketplace where she thought portion control bowls were very unattractive and people would hide them whenever anyone came to their home. So she wanted to create a bowl that she could bring to, table, to the right. table. So she was obviously able to do the logo and to, to do the icons for the portion control, but she also then had to create the bowl and she had to do research on manufacturing the bowl and then she did the packaging for the bowl and then she did a website to sell the bowl mm -hmm. so it was that to us is the range of the thesis project and so we just unleashed them and and saw that they were doing all the different components with all the different media it's also funny that you know uh, when somebody becomes a graphic designer they're in, in at least in the old days they were launched into a particular niche mm -hmm. but that niche doesn't exist anymore if they want to make something with their hands they can and so the I can do it all simply is as we just said it's it's the license and if you're if you allow them to do it they will do it now you write in the book that designers have traditionally been brought in at the end rather than in the beginning of a product certainly the fundamental certainly when the fundamental decisions are being made and they're hired to uh, create the package rather than conceive. So when did you see this transformation of roles? Well, 10 years ago. 10? When we started <laughs> when you the started program. <laughs> we started seeing it. It's not like it just started 10 years ago. It started many years ago. It was done by certain designers 
who, uh, Massimo Vignelli, for example, I mean, he created more than just graphic design, but right. he got pigeonholed into the graphic design niche. Ivan Chermayev, Seymour Quast, they all did things that were uh, Milton Glaser with his restaurants. These were people who were more ecumenical in their work than parochial. Mm -hmm. and it's just, it, it, we, what we did was we kind of codified it. We said, okay, there are a few people doing it. Maybe more people want to do it. In fact, Maybe it's the direction for the future. Well, it's interesting that 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 is the that that was ten years ago. Because if you think back ten years ago, there wasn't as much of the ability, whether it be technologically or whether it be conceptually, to create all of these things instantly the way that we're doing now, the way that there is so much of the DIY movement involved in the design movement as well. Absolutely. And for us, that's a measure of uh, a success in the mm -hmm. program. When the students graduate, again, they don't have to necessarily bring something that will, you know, have a mass market or they don't have to start their own studio, although many of them do. But if they can feel at the end of the two years that they really know what it is they bring to the discussion around the table, that they're not there just to package it or make it look nice, then we feel that, you know, their two years in the program has been successful. One of the things that you wrote about um, that I found so compelling uh, in the book, you write about how during the mid-50s, an era defining phenomena overtook the advertising and design fields and you called it the big idea revolution um, and and I think we're seeing that now for anybody that watches Mad Men uh, the whole idea of the big idea revolution um, would you say that this is an era that we're living in now that has that same type of defining phenomena no I'd say that what happened in the 50s with the the big idea and George Lois and the Wunderkinds of advertising, mm -hmm. they really changed the, the paradigms of what their industry was doing uh, in, a, in a formal way and in, a, in, in terms of content. I think now it's really picking up a lot of pieces that were already there. I don't see it as, as uh, revolutionary. I see it as evolutionary. And I see that mm. the, um, what we're calling, we're not calling it a movement or anything. In fact, you know, many of the students that come out of the program don't become entrepreneurs, but they do have the ability now to go into the marketplace, into their jobs, and be more confident and more secure in stating their opinions and their, giving their minds and, and giving ideas. But I, I think this is more of a, a bolstering of the profession as opposed to a revolution within the profession. I, I, I kind of disagree, Steve. Well, I'm leaving. <laughs> That's it. Well, I, I feel that what this book is showing, what, this, what, the, what the design entrepreneur is showing, and what your program is also encouraging is the designer to do it all and encouraging designers to make it all. And I think that what is really exciting about this, what I would call, maybe you might call it a movement, but I, I certainly feel like it could be, is the ability for designers to be creating the work that they're doing in a way that is far more significant than it ever has before. The case studies in your book, the designers that are coming out of your program, have the ability to orchestrate new ways of thinking by the very products that they're creating and designing. And that's a very powerful place to be. It is. And what I see it as uh, is a continuum. Okay. And that designers 
always had these tools and gifts. They didn't always have the permission, they didn't even always have the skills to do what they did during the, the big idea revolution. Maybe we're talking semantics, maybe not. But I, I see this as we kind of glommed onto something that people were going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do think that the, when the students graduate from this program, they do have much more confidence. And again, they do know what right. part of the discussion they, they can participate in. And I think that's really, really important. And I think they do go out and they do change the way we see things, the way we view things, the way we live with things, so the way we design things. I think they do create change. But it seems in small steps. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I guess for me, seeing it all in one place in the book in this way, I was really overwhelmed with optimism of what it's possible for designers to be doing and to be succeeding at. And it okay. takes a lot of courage. That's the other thing. They have this idea, and very often it will just remain an idea, but we've allowed them to uh, tap into other resources so that they can take this idea and actually bring it to the marketplace. And so it, we've, we've said, don't be afraid of a business plan. You need to have a business plan if you're going mm -hmm. to bring this out. You need to take a market survey. You need to know that what you're saying about the person who wants this this product is in fact the person who wants it and how much they'll pay for it and where to actually bring it and where it will live so we've given them license to include the business aspect with it and um, uh, they do they do they just then don't leave it just uh, as an idea or as a you know a great thesis project they actually go that other step but it does take courage and it does take perseverance mm -hmm. and it does take confidence that they can actually get into this um, arena with their product. And your term optimism is right. I mean, the book, I think, is a very happy book. It is a very happy Even book. Even though the slipcase is very black. <laughs> well, that's something open, I once, like. <laughs> once you open up the black, then you get this bright red. Mm -hmm. And inside, you get a lot of color. And just on a, a formal level, the color jumps out at you. And I think that jumping out is, is very optimistic, and that's what they do. The people in this book are not all our students. There are people like Charles Spencer Anderson. There's T26 Type Foundry. There's a whole range. Helen Lupton, Myra Kelman. They, they are all doing entrepreneurial things, but you don't think of them necessarily as entrepreneurs. What we did was we cherry-picked what they did, and we found that entrepreneurial aspect right. of their work. So they've been working, they've been doing their big ideas for a long time. Right. We're just codifying. Right. And I, what I loved about it is that it's designers as entrepreneurs, but it's also entrepreneurs as designers. Yes. And yes. that's the part of it that I really loved being able to see. Um, in the book, you talk about how drive is the common denominator of all entrepreneurial pursuits. And that the equation for success, you have it is D plus B equals C, which stands for drive plus brilliant equals critical mass. And that two forces, will and intelligence, must be fused in order to generate enough energy to take the entrepreneurial plunge. And I'm glad that we talked a little bit about courage, because I think in addition to will and intelligence, you certainly can have the will or the desire. You can certainly have the intelligence. But I think one thing that is necessary is courage. How do you encourage courage in your students? How do you give them that sense of um, 
beyond optimism, but just the, the sense of, of reality to make something like that happen? Well, I think it all really starts with passion. I think even before courage comes passion. P, put the P. Put, put the P. P. <laughs> and, 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 you know, when they're starting to think about this thesis that they're going to journey, that they're going to embark on that will last a year and a half, because it comes in the uh, second semester of the first year, we try to tell them to really see what it is that they're passionate about. What is it that they feel they have inside that has to come out? What is it that they have to say? Now they can say it in a, mm -hmm. a variety of media, but what is it they really have to say? And who are they trying to say it to? So it's basically what is it and who is it for? But I think it starts off with passion. And then if you can identify that passion, then really have the courage of the conviction of that passion to go forward. And I think if you start off there, um, your chances of succeeding are pretty good. And then you have to give them the tools. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they have to have the tools. They have to know if they have an, if they have an idea, if they have uh, a thought, that they can bring it to fruition in some way. They can fabricate it. So a lot of it is technology. It's technique. Uh, so that is how you develop uh, the courage by giving them self-confidence. We keep talking about these words, but the process is not easy because some people don't think they should do that. Graphic design was never about go out there and give us your ideas. Mm -hmm. So it's, in a sense, a re-education process for some. Not for all, but for some. Now, you know, also, some of the, sometimes the students are very uh, reluctant about the whole business. Although I'm sure. I think they probably think they, it compromises them as an artist. Exactly. And so we, we have to overcome that. But, but, you know, it doesn't only have to be a product. It could be a campaign. It could be something that has to go out into the world, an information campaign. And, again, our job is that we have to let them know who will put forth this campaign, who they can go to and collaborate with and bring this campaign into the world. So it's whatever it is that they have to bring to the world to make sure that they can identify how to get it there, what it's going to take. I well, there's also a good part of the book that is uh, dedicated to helping the reader understand that positioning and strategy is critical to these being successful case studies. So I think that's also uh, another aspect of the book that is, is truly wonderful. When Edison uh, invented whatever he invented, mm -hmm. you know, he, he didn't stop at being the inventor. Right. He created a company. He created many companies, and he created opportunities. So we're just trying to get a lot of Edisons out there. I think that's a great, great example because it never, ever um, compromised his genius or his creativity. So... I think what you guys are doing is just, that's amazing. I wish it was across the board to all art forms. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling, Gregory. Take care. Uh, we are going to take a little break, uh, and when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about failure. <laughs> I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to the fourth anniversary episode of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are designers, educators, and authors, Steve Heller and Lita Tellerico. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. the business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability? And what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Hi, this is Eric Ryan, co-founder of Google's soap company Method. Here today to talk to you about Fuse, the annual event for design and culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 22nd to 24th at the Hotel Nico in my beautiful hometown of San Francisco. Fuse has been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for more than 10 years. This year, I'll be talking about the Method brand on Thursday, April 23rd, along with some other brilliant thinkers from McDonald's, Victoria's Secrets, and more. Also joining us is the always amazing Dan Pink, author of A Whole New Mind. And every April, hundreds of design legends and corporate superstars converge at Fuse to join the brand design community and redefine the next generation of brand strategy and design. Time to move beyond the fear and the uncertainty and start a conversation that celebrates possibility, opportunity, and change. Fuse promises to deliver the information, inspiration, and camaraderie that you need to stay on top, focused, strong, and renewed. So register today at www.iirusa.com forward slash Fuse and receive a 25% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. Hope to see you there. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.34 Eastern Time, and you are listening to the fourth anniversary broadcast of Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are designers, educators, and authors, Steve Heller and Lita Tellerico. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Steve or Lita, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. Before the break, we were talking about Steve and Lita's book, 
the design entrepreneur, turning graphic design into goods that sell, a marvelous new book that showcases case studies from designers bringing products and ideas to market. Some wonderful case studies, including work by Deborah Adler, Eve Behar, Stefan Bucher, Myra Kalman, Armin Vitt, and Brian e. Gomez Palacio. I think it's a wonderful and inspirational collection of case studies. But now I want to talk a little bit about unsuccessful endeavors. And another of Steve's latest books, a book called Design Disasters Great Designers, Fabulous Failures, and Lessons Learned. And I think it's really interesting that I'm imagining that you're working on these books at the same time, given that they've come out at about the same time. Uh, two books about the idea of success, totally interconnected, but polar opposite thematically. What was, what was yin that? Yin and yin. <laughs> what was that experience like? Did you do it intentionally? No. No. So it was just totally serendipitous that you're working on a book about success and failure at yeah, the well, same time. You, you are often more successful failing than you are succeeding, if you follow that solipsism. <laughs> but, um, the fact is, in, in our program, Lita and I uh, emphasize to the students that they get more out of their crits if they're failing than they do if they're succeeding. Well, you said in the book, early on in the book, you say that an awful lot of design success is actually rooted in or built on failure. And in the best situations, failure is a trigger. And can you, can you talk a little bit more about failure as a trigger? Well, failure becomes that thing that you have to overcome, which means it's a challenge, which means that you learn from mistakes. It's a cliche, but the fact of the matter is you do. If you start fully formed, uh, you, you don't develop. I mean, just think, if you came out of the womb looking like you do now, <laughs> thinking that way, you'd never have a chance to learn anything. So um, what I tried to do with this book was just say there are so many ways of addressing how we develop, how we evolve. Uh, one that people tend to shy away from is failure because failure has this stigma. The fact is, failure shouldn't have that stigma. You know, if you do something that doesn't work, then you try to do something else or you dig a different hole somewhere else. You write about something in the book that I try to also uh, hammer into my students, for lack of a better word, uh, the idea of trying to prepare for every scenario. Um, I also encourage my students, I actually beg them really, to relentlessly prepare for every design presentation that they go into. And I ask them to visualize every possible scenario, what will happen if the client hates everything or hates your favorite idea. And you write about the same thing and suggest that designers should always anticipate that which should be anticipated. And I, I want to say it again that designers should always anticipate that which should be anticipated. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Well, I was writing a song at the time, and that's <laughs> a good lyric. You're very punchy today, and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's my fourth anniversary. I was going to say, you're an old hat. You just um, uh, say it, whatever you want. It, it, we, we, we look towards uh, our, our day every day. We anticipate what's going to go on in the day. Some people write long lists. Some people have calendars. So we anticipate the big things. What's more important than a presentation? What's more important than going to a class 
with your project and anticipating that somebody's not going to like it. How do you address that? Sometimes it's just about spin. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you want to come out on top. So how do you come out on top? Otherwise, it's about how do you maximize what's going on around you. So it, it's good to anticipate things. I kind of learned that from baseball because you anticipate what the pitcher is going to pitch. Mm -hmm. uh, you anticipate how the batter is going to bat. You line up your players in the field in such a way defensively so that you can limit the damage that's done by a good hitter. Mm -hmm. So why not do it with design as well? That's very funny. I talk to my students about it, but I use the basketball analogy. <laughs> and the basketball analogy that I use, imagine it's the end of the fourth quarter. You have two teams playing against each other, two equally good teams, but one team is down by ten points and there's two minutes left to go. Do you think that in that timeout when the coach is preparing the players to go back on the court, that he's saying to them, now listen, just play as best as you can. You just try as hard as you can to score a basket, and it'll happen. No. There's a game plan. There's a game plan for every possible scenario that could occur. Of if the ball goes this way, you do that. If this happens, same thing with all sports. And I don't think that designers actually think about that too often. First of all, I think designers, and I don't know if it's just graphic designers, maybe all designers, we fall in love with our work. We look at it and we think, Wow. Yeah, it's a very narcissistic field in that sense. You know, everybody's going to love what we do, so right. therefore we don't have to worry about it. It's a very good point. And people don't really plan on the possibility that the client might actually hate everything. Exactly. And that doesn't mean they failed either. No. They fail if they haven't worked out a strategy so that they can combat uh, that philistinic client or that client who had actually maybe right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most I think designers have the reaction, you know, they do the either they do the inner eye roll while they're in the meeting or the actual eye roll after the meeting. And and chances are the um, response is is well the client is an idiot and in fact, you know, the client's the one that's actually asking you to do this. So if they were not idiots enough to hire you, then chances are they might they might not be fully idiots if they don't actually like what you've done. But it tends to be a very defensive scenario. And I often tell students that when your client doesn't like something, it's very rare that you're ever going to convince them that they're wrong about not liking something. And that the more you fight them to not like something, the worse it's going to get. They're never going to suddenly decide, well, you know, you might be right. When you're in a store and you're buying something, you're looking to buy something and a salesperson tells you that an outfit looks good on you that you know really looks bad on you, no matter what they tell you, you are not going to suddenly think, gee, my butt doesn't really look fat in that outfit. That's the way I feel all the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing about being a design entrepreneur is that you are your own client. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but you are also trying to sell that to somebody who may or may not like it. Now, one of the best titled essays from the book is, by, uh, is from Nick Curry, who states the title is, Wrong is the New Right. And I could not help but think of this when President Obama admitted to screwing up over his nomination of Daschle to head up the Department of Health and Human Services. What an unusual response. I screwed up. And he said, you know, it's not the mistake. It's how you respond to the mistake. And I love the idea that even the president could admit to being wrong. Well, remember... Uh, uh 
President Truman said the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. So essentially, that's what he was saying. If mm -hmm. something is wrong, I screwed up. Right, right. But it's, it's, it's certainly a lot better than saying, well, I'm the decider, live with it. Yeah. Well, um, we don't have to get into him anymore. <laughs> no, we don't. But so, so here we are now talking a little bit about government, and maybe it's the appropriate time to talk a little bit about the other book that I wanted to talk about today, three of your, your most recent books, a magnificent, important book called Iron Fists, Branding the total Totalitarian <laughs> State. Yeah, we're both punchy today. Um, this is an incredible book. Uh, it's the first illustrated survey of the propaganda, art, graphics, and artifacts created by the governments of Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and the communist regimes of the USSR and China. Why do this book, Steve? Why do this book? Why Why did you do this book? Why because do this book? I am totally obsessed with how power is manifest. And because I'm a, a designer, because I love graphics, because I am a fan as well as a, a critic of, of graphic elements, typography mm -hmm. and imagery and uh, symbols, I wanted to explore how it how graphics uh, held that reign of power, how it was used as a tool for power, how it informed people but also manipulated people. And what better way to do it than regimes where it was used so powerfully mm -hmm. to gain power? Yes. Now, I didn't realize until reading this book that uh, Hitler actually had an aspiration to become an artist he was rejected twice from uh, the various schools that he applied. Uh, well, and the, the Vienna Art Academy, the Kunstgewerbeschule. So he applied to the same school twice. He was rejected. Right. He he thought he could fool them the second time, but he couldn't draw hands very well. Uh huh. So it's quite interesting the idea of Hitler as an aspiring artist. Well, there was a movie a few years ago called Max, which kind of fictionalizes that whole artistic quest that he had and ultimately uh, makes it seem as though uh, the Nazi party was his art project. And it suggests that had he become an artist, all of this wouldn't have happened. Well, you know, destiny and fate are uh, very quirky things. But he understood what uh, symbolism was. I mean, on the, the base level, he developed, he, he selected the logo for his party, the swastika, right. which had uh, a very long history. So um, he took that and repurposed uh, it. He did all the things that branders will do today right. to create an identity for his party and later for his state. Well, it says that... Um in, in the book, he, that in his studies from 1913 to 1914, he conceived an elaborate uh, dystopia where the overall imagery, including uniforms, flags, and symbols, constituted a kind of socio-political art project. Right. And um, and then he was quite from from I learned quite a lot about the his process of developing the graphics for his regime from the book. Um, you talk about how. Uh, Hitler, who treasured the Iron Cross, he had won during World War One, and it was the only decoration he wore in his party uniform, understood that members were more apt to follow if they shared in the trappings of the party. 
and he held that certain colors were capable of attracting and focusing public attention, especially during a period of revolution. He had many visual ideas of his own, but preferred not to disclose them in order to leave all options open without losing face. I, as leader, was unwilling to make public my own design, as it was possible that someone else could come forward with a design just as good, if not better, than my own. You write about his writing and his... his uh, well, he wrote that in Mein Kampf, which, of course, was uh, a very laundered version of, of, his, uh, of his life. So he was, there was false modesty there. I mean, he was truly... People have said who, who listened to him, he would go on for these endless monologues, leaving no room for anyone else to speak. So in Mein Kampf, he was kind of being a little conciliatory towards others, but ultimately takes full credit for doing what he did graphically and in terms of the flag and the, the seal of, uh, of his party. You, know, you talk about positioning and strategy in the design entrepreneur, and I think that we... You, you weave in, or there is a number of essays that weave in the idea of not fully thinking through implications in, in design disasters. And then we talk, you talk quite a lot about Hitler's um, manipulation of um, language and, the, and, and perception in the way that he organized his speeches, the way that he presented himself during his speeches. Mm -hmm. And he would start out very bumbling, and very meek and very slow. slow, and then he would have this arc along over the course of his presentations where he would then change and create this drama. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how he was able, at least from your from your perspective in, in writing the book, how he was able to use design to manipulate his um, his people. Well, he was very jealous of the Soviets uh, and of the communists. They had the red flag, which was the flag of socialism from the commune, the Paris commune. Um, they had the hammer and sickle, which began as a hammer and plowshare. And he felt that that unified a vision and ultimately gave uh, a, a logo in the cent centrist sense of the word logo to everybody who was in that party. And he really wanted something like that. He knew that that would take a ragtag bunch of people who were supporters, who mm -hmm. had, had passions or frustrations that he wanted to, to uh, exploit. Uh, and once he created something very similar, you could see, I mean, it was almost like the Japanese, if you've seen those Kurosawa movies where mm -hmm. one group of, uh, of soldiers are fighting another and they wear flags on their backs. And it, it, he, he, it was almost like a game. He saw graphic design as, as a chess set. Mm -hmm. He saw that different groups wore and had different regalia. He saw that different... Um, Organizations within the overall brand had their distinctions so that there was pride of place and that there was a, willing, a, a desire to beat out the next. Mm -hmm. So it all played in. I mean, graphic design was separate in terms of what I write about here, but totally integrated into everything else. That all said, he was a very disorganized person according to all accounts, that he set different bureaucracies against one another. Mm -hmm. And he felt that by doing that, or at least it seemed by doing that, they would 
make their own rules as they go along. So what I found that was most interesting to me is the, even though on the surface Nazi design seems so consistent, there was a lot of inconsistency based on the fact that people were trying to anticipate what he wanted and also do what they thought was right. So it's not, I don't think it's really possible to have that type of brand imagery accidental. I don't think that, that the work that came out, the, the graphics that were created during that time were just good luck on, on Hitler's part. This was a very specific marketed brand strategy. Well, he was, he was enamored with Peter Behrens, who was the founder, the creator, the father of corporate identity for right. the AEG in Germany. In fact, he made Behrens uh, an art director. Interestingly, just an aside, uh, he offered uh, uh, Will Burton, the former art director of Fortune and the great information art director, he wanted Will Burton to be the art director of the propaganda ministry. Mm -hmm. And Burton demurred and uh, ultimately left the country. Um, but it, was by, it wasn't an accident at all. I mean, Germany was a hotbed of great graphic thought and great graphic deed, from the posters of Ludwig Holwein to the typography of uh, Lucien Bernhard, who was considered a Jew, even though he wasn't, so he was out, and his typefaces were out. But they understood that the graphic elements were truly important in getting people not only to abide by the party's wishes, but just to get around town. Mm -hmm. They understood all aspects of that. And it wasn't just Hitler. It was people like Goebbels or Albert Speer. Albert Speer understood that you needed dramatic lighting. You needed those big banners everywhere that were, you know, once the color was there, exploit the color. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs in quite, a, quite an evil manner. You have said that designers should do something to intervene with their cultures, lest they become irrelevant. Um, since we live in a democracy, designers should take professional and personal roles. And do you feel, and Lee, I want to ask you this question as well, do you feel that designers have an obligation to be involved with social change and social commentary? Well, I think designers have uh, the tools to engage other human beings. As long as you have those tools to engage them on an intellectual or aesthetic uh, level, you have a responsibility to not shirk your responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that responsibility is to give to the, the culture whatever you can. It doesn't mean you have to be a saint. It just means that you have to be kind of aware of what is going on when you're making certain typographic choices or pictorial choices that people are going to respond to it. And it, it, it's across the board. I mean, it's not just graphic designers. It's all sorts of, it's actors, it's, it's writers, it's, it's uh, uh, musicians. Uh, at the same time, you have to be true to yourself as well, and you have to be expressive in your own way. And I think designers have an ability to be personally expressive as well. Well, I agree. I mean, I think that the, they shouldn't have to shoulder the brunt of the responsibility to be socially aware, but I think whenever you're taking on a project and you are going to put it out in the world and try to make people feel a certain way about that product, that you have to know what it is you're doing and how you're going to make people feel about it and what it actually is, what is behind this company, what is behind that brand. So that you don't have to be, have to have the social banner, but you, you should know what it is you're doing and how people are going to perceive it and not mislead people. Yeah. That's the, the only responsibility that I think they have, but I don't think they have to be 
they have to shoulder that um, more than any other uh, creative person like the musician, as Steve says, or, or anyone else. Well, I was thinking quite a lot about the show in the last couple of weeks, and as I was doing my research and reading the books, I was really trying to ha come up with a, a theme that would really connect all of these topics that I wanted to talk to you both about. Um, three very different books, a couple of other topics that are, uh, I think, um, certainly not at the centerpiece of, of the theme of the books. And I, I decided that the theme for this show in, in sort of the high altitude idea was the power of design. Mm -hmm. Here we see it. We see it as the designer, as, as an entrepreneur who has the ability now to impact the world in, in really quite a significant way, whether it be um, the first time out or through the trigger failure, <laughs> the failure trigger, and then also what, what is possible just with our, the visual imagery that, that is part of our history. It's also the impact of the designer. Yes. So it's the designer that triggers the design. Sometimes it's vice versa. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a designer has an ability, some, and sometimes you don't have the opportunity. Uh, in, in the totalitarian state, the designers did not rule the roost. There were people who, like Karl Rove in the Bush administration, mm. there are agendas that have to be met and they hire people to do that. But alternately speaking, and, and Hitler was a case, I mean, he, he was a designer, so he did exercise his power. As you so aptly put it, design matters. <laughs> well, I love talking to you. I love spending time with you. I'm always inspired when I'm in your presence. For anybody else that wants that experience, you are now put, you've put together a master's workshop, uh, Design History, Theory, and Practice in Rome and Venice this summer. So in the last couple of minutes before the show is over, can you tell us a little bit more about this extraordinary School of Visual Arts summer program in Italy? Yes, we're very, very excited about it, and it's the capstone of our 10th anniversary year. We have a series of initiatives um, for this 10th anniversary, and this is the capstone. We've decided to um, take a limited number of students, participants, actually young designers, for a week in Venice and a week in Rome. We're collaborating with um, Italian designers and having... Um, you can keep talking. Oh, don't worry. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> that was it. Can you turn off the music for a second, guys? Um, we want to have one more minute of talking. Thank yeah, we you. just thought it was a perfect thing to take the show on the road, and what better place to take it than to Italy, um, Rome? You know, where we will go and see letters, the Roman letter, and and letters talk about you know advertising and branding and and making a difference. And every column that you see in Rome is some big advertisement for some. Uh, imperial Roman leader and uh, so to take them back to the roots and take them on a journey uh, we also have um, collaborations in Venice we're collaborating with the Fondazione Claudio Buccioli we have our classrooms in a palazzo on the Grand Canal it's really gorgeous yeah and yeah. we are going to do a lot on food Louise Feely is going to do a, uh, a whole class on type and food. That's amazing. So you can spend two weeks studying visual communication and typography in Venice and Rome with Steve and Lita. How can people apply to the program? Well, they can go to our website, which Lita will tell you in a minute. Design.sva.edu. Or they can call the program coordinator, Esther, and her number is 212 592 
800-242-2600. And she's waiting for your call now, and you get a free <laughs> gift if you call. Okay. Well, I thank you so <laughs> much for being on the show. You Pleasure. guys are just extraordinary. Um, thank you. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Next week, we have a very special show. This is the first time ever. I will have a guest host, Nate Voss, from Be a Design Cast, and the Reflex Blue Show will be interviewing the legendary Joe Duffy. What a great show that's going to be. So thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you in the coming weeks. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business.